Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. This week, we're, we're going into this new series, and it's an extremely short series this month, and we're looking at this idea that love is not irritable. Have you ever been irritable? You are lying through your teeth, Julie. Have you ever been irritable or angry before? How many of you have justified your irritation and your anger out of your selfishness? I have, because I don't like to be wrong. Do you like to be wrong? Most people don't. I've never heard a person say, I love to be wrong, unless it's over something that you think is bad and then you want it to be wrong, so you hope you're wrong. But that's a different sermon topic for a different day. How do we, how do we love without being irritable? Have you ever been irritable at the ones you love the most? Have people in your home that carry the same blood in their veins that you do, have they ever irritated you? My kids don't irritate each other. They don't irritate us, and we don't irritate them. We have the perfect home. (laughs) And they will tell you that. Right, Mac? Exactly. So today's sermon is about not letting anger control you. How do you not let anger control you? Is anger bad? Well, no. But when have you ever seen anger being used in a controlled way to bring about something good? Very, very rarely. Jesus got angry. We always like to go to the temple where he stormed the temple and drove the money changers and the merchants out because his father's house was to be a house of prayer and they've made it into a den of thieves and robbers. You remember that story? But you know, in his anger, and I think I mentioned this before, is do you notice in one of the passages, he, you get this picture that he sits down and he, what does he do? He braids a whip. Now, I didn't know most guys could braid, but Jesus can braid. And he braided a whip in his anger. It's akin to count to 10. So Jesus is counting to 10. He knows what's going on in the temple. It's gone on for decades, if not longer. And he's braiding this whip. And in this controlled focus of anger, not so much out of selfishness, but out of righteous anger for his father's house, he drives out the money changers. Now, He doesn't just come in and say, hey, you guys, please stop. (laughs) Don't do this. (laughs) It's a bad idea. Um, Whoops, and he flips over a table. No, he comes in. I would hate to see Jesus. All right, has there been somebody in your life where you're thinking, boy, I'd hate to see that person angry because you've never seen him angry before? I'm guessing that was somewhat like Jesus to see the full brunt force of his anger. 
And he jumps in there and he's like, oh no, you didn't. What boom, what bam. Now he's not hurting the animals in the process. He's gently opening the cages to let them out. Uh, the sacrifices that they were selling in that area. But he's driving, and think of the whip. You know, I can't make the whip sound. It just, I could do the nay-nay, but not the whip. And, uh, but he was driving them out with this focused, intense, righteous anger. That's a dad joke, isn't it? You're welcome, Rachel. So how do you not let anger control you? Well, we're going to go to a passage in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Just prior to the verse we're going to be reading today is this, uh, is this breakdown of offices and gift mixes in the church. And if you go back to verse 11, you'll see where Paul says, uh, God gave certain positions or offices to the church or gifts you know, people to the church. He gifted them with the prophecy and, and being pastors and evangelists, prophets, teachers, uh, and shepherds. For what purpose? For the edification of the body of Christ, to equip the saints from, who are saints? Are those the ones that the Catholic church has deemed saints and they make these things? Uh, no. What we read when we're reading in the New Testament, who is a saint? The definition of a saint is somebody who is a believer in Christ and has surrendered their life to him. Okay? If you're a believer in Christ and you've surrendered your life to him, guess what you are? So now you can go to your kids and say, I'm a saint. You better treat me like one. No, that's arrogance and pride that has no part in God's kingdom, so you can't even say that. But we are all saints. So to equip the saints for ministry to unify the body of Christ. And then he goes on, when we get to chapter 4, verse 17, he says, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Stop. Where is Ephesus? Okay, so if you were to look at a global map or a map today, a world map, and you look at Turkey, modern-day Turkey, it's, uh, it's kind of this thing that juts out like this, uh, toward the Mediterranean Sea. The Black Sea is north of it. Uh, and and it, it, it's kind of got this, uh, the Aegean Sea, which is, you've got Greece, the Aegean Sea, and then Turkey. So Ephesus is on the westernmost coast of Turkey. Still existent today as an ancient city that's in ruins. Ephesus was this place that was known for its great worship of this goddess called Artemis. Or, and that was in the Greek culture. Uh, and the Romans, when they took it over, they called her Diana. So Artemis or Diana. The temple for Artemis was huge. Three to 400 feet in length and some 200 some odd feet wide. Don't take my exact measurements because I'm giving you the, what, or the roundabouts or the averages here. But it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is where the Temple of Artemis was in the city of Ephesus. Guess who Artemis or Diana was? Okay, she was a statue. She wasn't a real god, just in case you're curious. That was a quiz, and you failed miserably. <laughs> but if you're, if you're below the age of 16, plug your ears. Artemis or Diana, are you plugging yours? Artemis or Diana was this figure of a woman. She was a fertility goddess. 
and she had rows and rows of breasts from her belly up to her neck. Okay? All the way around, back to. All right? That's what she looked like. And that's what the statue that stood in the middle of that temple would look like. She was huge. She stood, imagine how tall this ceiling is in here. They would have carved her and had her standing about that tall, give or take, because this was a huge temple. And guess what the act of worship was at the temple of Artemis? Well, various different things. You could burn incense, you could sacrifice animals, uh, but there was also a thing called temple prostitution. Male prostitutes and female prostitutes. There were actually so-called temple virgins that would be there, and they were considered virgins because they had given their lives over to being temple prostitutes. So they had this perpetual virginity, if you will, even though their act was to basically have sex with somebody coming in who wanted their wife or their husband to be fertile. So they would sleep with the prostitute thinking they'd get the blessing of Diana or Artemis on their family so that when they went back home and they slept with their spouse, then they would have children. You see how this works? And, and in the years when they would have these certain festivals to Artemis or Diana, it was a drunken, lustful experience. It was a party town. Now, Ephesus was a Gentile city under the Greco-Roman culture. It wasn't a Christian city. It wasn't a Judaistic city. Uh, It was a Gentile city. Now, what is Paul saying here? With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as Gentiles do. Who made up the church in Ephesus? Converted Gentiles to Christianity. They believed the message of Christ. There were probably some Jews there, some converted Jews, but the predominant culture of that day was Gentiles. And he's telling them, don't live like you used to. Don't live like a Gentile, for they, hopelessly, they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives us because they've closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Ephesus was also a port city. It was kind of an intersection within the Roman culture and even in the Greek culture. It was kind of an intersection of trade and everything. And it had one of these ports that was just really popular back in the day. If you go to Ephesus today, that, that, that port has now filled up with silt. And it started doing that back in the ancient times, which is why Ephesus started to bottom out economically and people moved on to different cities. So uh, Ephesus just kind of had a downgrade. It's like the steel industry leaving uh, Western Pennsylvania and going to China. It really kills towns, right? So that's what happened uh, is the port filled up with silt and people moved on. But in its heyday, it was this place of, of popularity and fame. There's a lot of money coming through there. But then he goes on to say, but that isn't what you learned from Christ. He's saying, don't live like the Gentiles. Don't give in to these lustful pleasures, desires. Don't be selfish. Don't don't harden your hearts and don't be callous to God. That's what the Gentiles do here. They have no sense of shame. Don't be like that. But 
Do what you've learned from Christ. Since you've, lear- since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. He says, you once lived like this, don't continue to live like that anymore. Live like this, live like Jesus did. Live like Christ has called you to live. And he goes on to say, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives, and here's the key this morning, what? A foothold to the devil. What does anger do? Well, Jesus was angry. Did he give a foothold to the devil? No, because he was angry and he didn't sin. It's what it says, Paul Paul writes this in another one of his letters, be angry, but sin not. That is super hard to do. Because when I get angry, guess what thoughts start to flood my mind? They're not righteous thoughts. They're selfish thoughts. I can't believe you said that to me. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you broke that rule that I put in play. And it's all about me. Typically, anger forces us inward, and the enemy knows that. And when we get angry and we get tempted to anger, he knows that he can do his most masterful work in those situations. If he can hold sway over our emotions, he can hold sway over our hearts and over our minds. And it's subtle. You can, that's what I'm saying. You can justify your own anger, can't you? Well, I'm right to be angry because they're so wrong. Be careful, Jesus says. Sermon on the Mount. Before you try to get the speck out of somebody else's eye, what are you to do? Get the log out of your own eye. So when you get angry and you see a speck in somebody else's eye and you have this righteous indignation because you want to fix what's broken in them, Jesus says, be careful. Get the log out of your own eye first. He doesn't say don't go to that person, does he? No, he just says, before you go to them, check yourself. And in order to check yourself, you can't allow your emotions to get the better of you. Can you? No. You have to be in full control of your faculties and your emotions. But a lot of times when we get irritated, when we get frustrated, love goes out the window, doesn't it? See, I contend that Jesus loved in the midst of the temple when he was driving the money changers and, and, and the merchants out. I contend it was an act of love because God's judgment is also an act of his almighty love. But our judgment is so much different than God's. Judge not lest you be judged, right? Before you take the speck out of somebody else's eye, take the log out of your own. He's saying, when you do it, because you're broken and sinful in nature, you've got to be careful. Though you may be a redeemed one of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've surrendered your life to him, don't allow a foothold for the devil by the way you act, the way you feel. Make sure you are in complete control by the Holy Spirit in your life. Here's a key point this morning, and uh, we're not going to read the rest of that because that's going to come up in a couple weeks, all right? The key point this morning is this. 
when we allow irritability and anger to control us, we give a foothold to the devil. It's just what I've been talking about. It's simple this morning. It is not a, a point where it's going to wow you like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I never heard that before. No, it's, it's a true reality and it should be a simple concept. But a lot of times we don't allow the simple concepts to penetrate our hearts and our minds and to actually hold sway over us. Instead, we allow the enemy to hold sway over us and to control us. Why? Because the human nature is broken. And when we give in to the broken human nature, we get what the human nature, what the human nature creates. And it's usually sin. See, this is why when, when we read about becoming new creations, we become new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come, right? We don't give in to the baser sinful lusts of the flesh anymore. It's what he's trying to say to the church at Ephesus. Listen, <laughs> you used to live this way. Don't live that way anymore. You are now surrendered to Christ. You are, you've now sit at the feet. You're learning from Jesus. Don't go back and do this behavior anymore. Stop that. Do this. And again, remember, it's not about doing as much as it is about being. We talked about that in a class I was teaching this morning. There's nothing I can do to save myself. Do you understand this? This idea of salvation comes from Christ alone. What God did through Christ gives me the hope of salvation. And Paul reminds us in Romans that in order to be saved, you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised him from the grave. Okay? That's the entrance. The entrance is through Jesus. John chapter 10, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. And he talks about how, how do sheep enter the sheepfold? He He's talking about us as if we want to be believers in Christ and we want to have the salvation that comes from being in Christ and the eternal security, he says you have to enter through the gate. And what does he say is the gate? Actually better, who does he say is the gate? He says, I'm the gate. Nobody can come, come into the sheepfold, into the kingdom of God. Nobody can be saved except coming in through me. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. Same terminology, same language. There's a consistency in Jesus' message. So we don't earn our salvation. He earned it for us. He became sin that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So that when we come into that belief, and we come into salvation through belief, it requires a shedding of the self. It means I'm wrong, he's right. When I compare myself to who he is, I always fall short. For all have sinned, I messed this up last time I said it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. When you compare yourself to other people, you may not always fall short. But when you compare yourself to God, guess what happens? you always fall short. Well, that sounds hopeless, but there is hope through Christ Jesus who took sin upon himself, died a criminal's death on a cross so that when we believe in him, our sins are paid for. Amen. Okay, that I just wanna clarify and set that foundation because what the Ephesians are doing is they're toying around with this idea, can I, can I still keep one foot over here and one foot in faith? Can I, can I still do both? No, you can't. Because here's the problem. 
When you live like the world, you get the results of the world. And what are the results of the world? Death. But let me look at, the, look at it this way. Has there ever been a nation on the face of the earth that lasted forever? A physical nation of kings and queens or emperors or presidents. They've always risen. They've always fallen. But the one kingdom that lasts forever is God's kingdom. And Jesus says, and standing in front of Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's an eternal kingdom, but it will last forever. I mean, it will last forever because of who he is and who we're not. Our kingdoms are based oftentimes on human rules and human laws. One of the unique things about the United States is it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but looking at it today, would you say that? So again, if your faith and hope is in the nation, then you've got big problems. And I see a lot of people fretting and worrying about this. Why? Because they put their hope in the nation. We live, and I've said this a million times before, I'll say it again, we live in one of the greatest and best and most free nations that the world has ever known. And I will never take that for granted. But I also know in great priority that I am not made for this kingdom, I'm made for another kingdom that is eternal. And when I get those things out of balance, then I I start to fight for the kingdoms of the world rather than stand firm in the kingdom of God. I start to fight for that. Look, they're taking this out of schools and they're doing that. Yes, that's an atrocity, but let's talk about that. The reason that's happening is because we are becoming more and more godless. And the reason that's happening, I contend, is because the church has forgot how to be the church. We've tried to adapt to the culture, and it's okay to adapt certain modes of doing things as long as you don't sacrifice your belief in the standard that God sets. But when you start to sacrifice the standard that God sets, you allow sin to enter the body of Christ. And when that happens, guess who leaves the building? Guess who leaves the church? Guess who leaves the people? God leaves the people. The Holy Spirit vacates the premises. So if you're here today and you're living in sin and you know it based on what God's word says, then what you've basically said is, I know better than God. I can live my life the way I want to, how I want to, and still believe in Jesus and I can be saved. Be careful. Because in Matthew chapter 7, what does Jesus say? There are many who will stand before me someday saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? And he'll say, depart from me for I never knew you. That's a scary prospect, isn't it? How do I be saved? How can I be saved? Well, the the Ephesian church, what do they do? They have to leave one world and commit themselves to another. They have to leave one way of life and commit themselves to another. They have to leave these behaviors behind and commit themselves to behaviors of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Because if they don't do that, then they allow a foothold for the devil. And the devil will take whatever he can, even if you give him a millimeter, not even a foothold. If you give him a millimeter worth of space in your life, he will corrupt the whole thing. You've heard the old adage, if I get a small little pinch of dog poop and mix it in with a batch, yes, all of you, a lot of you popped up there. Um, I'm just making sure you're still with me. If you get a small little, like, just tweezer pinch of dog poop, mix it in with a batch of brownies, you cook it, and you know that the cooking process has killed all the germs, how many of you would eat one of those brownies? One of you would down here on front. That is gross. 
mm, these are great, but they have a hint of poop in them. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how this is going to come out on the recording this week. So if you're listening online or at home, I apologize. Cannot give a foothold to the devil. And I've, here, I'm going to go through my points really quickly. First, before they became Christ followers, the people of Ephesus were calloused and corrupted by sin. We just talked about that. They were calloused and corrupted by sin. This idea for calloused means desensitized, okay? If you look at the Greek word for that, it actually translates better as they were desensitized. What happens when you become desensitized? You were not sensitive to certain things anymore, right? Uh, how, how is that happening in our culture? How is it happening in the culture of Ephesus, right? Because they were already desensitized. They had no shame. They lived like they wanted to, however they wanted to. And they didn't think there was anything. What's the problem? There's nothing wrong with this. My parents did it. My parents' parents did it. My parents' parents' parents did it. What's the big deal? It was modeled for me growing up. What's the big, and we continue to perpetuate patterns of behavior from generations prior when Jesus says it's not about generations prior, it's about who Jesus is now. And if who Jesus is now says that what you're doing is wrong and you need to live with him and in relationship with him, then you have a choice because you're faced with this choice. You can say, yeah, I want to live like that and I want to be saved. I, I, I don't want to go to hell when I die. I, I want to have salvation. But I also want to be in relationship with Jesus Christ because I know he has what's best for me. So I'm willing to leave all of this behind. I'm willing to make all of these sacrifices that once seemed joyful and good and, and, and fun for me. I'm willing to leave that behind because I know the hope that lies in Christ Jesus is so much better than that stuff was. What does it take to become undesensitized? What does it take to become sensitive again? It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit. He has to work on you. He convicts you of sin. He, 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 re, he helps you to realize what's missing in your life. You come to this place where you're like, I've been trying to fill myself with all of these things, and they still come up short. It still feels empty. I've got all the money the world could provide. I've got all the joy that it seemingly the world tells me I should have. I've got everything at my fingertips. We have more now, even in the poorest of our poor in our communities, they have cell phones, most of them, that, that we have everything at our fingertips for the most part. That only, you go back to Ephesus, you thought they had it good. We've got it so much better than they had it. They couldn't conceive of the things we have at our fingertips. And we become desensitized to the culture around us because we're looking at the culture on a screen. And that is not the reality oftentimes of the culture we live in. These are these small little tweet snapshots that really don't amount to a hell of things in the kingdom of heaven. But we get all wrapped up and frustrated about two sentences line in some tweet by somebody in power or somebody we know. Oh, I can't believe, I'm going to block them. Well, let me tell you what, when we get to heaven, there will be no blocking. Okay. There are no enemies in heaven. And I'm going to tell you, if you think your enemy is not making it to heaven, you better check yourself because <laughs> you got to be careful who you call an enemy and who you don't. Actually, 
whoever your enemy is, Jesus says you should love them. You should forgive them. You should do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who want to do you harm or who do you harm. Don't get angry. Surrender that anger to God. Don't allow anger to give a foothold to the devil in your life. Allow yourself to become sensitized by the power of the Holy Spirit in you to the things of God rather than the things of the world. It's better if we're desensitized to the things of the world and sensitized to the things of God because at least in that context, we're able to be clear on what's in contrast to God's word and God's standard. Secondly, when they became Christ followers, the Ephesians surrendered their sinful nature to Christ and worked hard to live out their love and faith for Christ and each other. You know, one of the marks of the Ephesian church was their love. Did you know that? In the book, or excuse me, the letter of Ephesians, <coughs> which is six chapters long, Paul wrote the word love more times in that letter than he did in all the other letters. Did you know that? The word love pops up in the letter to the church at Ephesus more times than any other writing of Paul. And Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, not the city, but the church at Ephesus was known as the church who loved well. But guess what happens over time? In Revelation chapter 3, and we'll get to that in a minute, what happens to the church at Ephesus? And this is just maybe three decades after, after the church is planted. Paul's writing his letter from prison to the church at Ephesus. He's imprisoned and he's writing this letter. Don't give up. Don't become desensitized. Don't get angry at your current situation or plight in life. Don't give a foothold to the devil. If anybody could have been angry, do you think Paul could have been angry sitting in a prison cell because he was living out his faith? If you were arrested and thrown in prison because you believed in Jesus, what would your emotional state be? Did you know that when, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Where's he writing from? Prison. We get mad when some small little thing happens. We get angry because, God, you're supposed to protect me from this. You're not allowed to let this happen to me. Who are we to tell God what he's allowed to do and not to do? Actually, God, God through Jesus Christ, Jesus reminds us, keep this in mind. When you follow me, if, you're, if you believe in me, you're going to be hated. Remember, when they're persecuting you, they persecuted me first. That, again, I, I'll say this. I think that's an amazing thing. That is a great tagline of faith. Come to Jesus, you'll get persecuted, right? Because that's really what he's saying. When they hate you, they hated me. When they persecute you, they persecuted me. Sign me up, right? Because we have become so desensitized to the word of God, that doesn't sound like something we're willing to do knowing what the end result will be, eternal life. And that definitely doesn't fit into prosperity gospel or prosperity theology, does it? No, if you come to Jesus, you can name it and claim it. <laughs> Never saw Jesus. You can name and claim your salvation because you're rooted in Christ and you know the end result is victory 
over the enemy and over sin and death. That's the promise. But it's not a promise that you'll escape persecution or that you'll escape things that are gonna frustrate you or gonna make you angry. You gotta be careful though. Don't allow anger to slip in. Don't allow anger to give a foothold to the devil in your life. When something doesn't go your way and you think you haven't done anything wrong and you're living for Christ, why is this happening to me? I've seen so many people turn and walk away from the faith because when the going gets tough, they get going. And when you get going, Jesus may pursue you, but he's also going to let you go. Do do you understand this? He's not going to force you to stay with him. I've said this a million times before. God is not a forceful lover. God loves you. He will always love you. But he can't save you unless you're willing to surrender to him. If you keep trying to save yourself, you keep trying to do your own thing, you keep living your own way in your own time and in your own style of doing it, He may pursue you. He may convict you of sin, but that that voice will become desensitized in you. If you continue to live in a pattern of behavior of sin, though you may say you have a belief in Christ, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a hard time hearing that still small voice. And that's a scary place to be when you don't hear that voice anymore when you have become so desensitized to the voice of God and the conviction of God on your life when you err, that's a scary prospect too. I would rather be in the center of God's will, suffering persecution, hearing the voice of God saying, I'm going with you through that deep, dark valley of the shadow of death, and you can fear no evil because I'm with you than to stand on the mountaintop feeling secure but being far away from God. Thirdly, over time the Ephesian church became calloused again. Again, within two and a half to three decades later, we read in Revelation chapter 3, hear this, Revelation chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. This is to the church at Ephesus. I have this complaint against you, Jesus says. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. What was the Ephesian church known for? Love. Who did God, or who did God, who did Paul write about love the most in his letter to the Ephesians? And now Jesus, some, again, mere three decades later, this church is 100 plus years old at this point. That church was in existence for 30 years. And they got to the point where they became calloused again. They didn't have the same love for God or for each other that they once did. And he goes on to say, look how far you've fallen. He could be saying that to the American church today. Look how far you've fallen. You've you've lost your first love. You don't love me or each other the way you used to. You're not willing to sacrifice for me or each other the way you used to. There are still needs among the body of Christ and none of you are meeting those needs together. You're not coming together breaking bread the way you used to. You barely meet 1.9 times a month. It's the average church attendance in the United States, 1.9 times a month. 
You barely are willing to come together for one and a half hours on a Sunday morning, two times a month. You don't do the thing. You don't love me or you don't love each other. You don't, you're not willing to gather together, break bread together. You're not willing to study the, study the word together. You're not willing to pray together. If I, were, if I were to tell you we're going to start doing a Tuesday night prayer meeting, and I've done it in the past for the past 20 years, you know how many people show up for a prayer meeting? Just to say, we're going to call out to God. I'm lucky if I get this many, five. Or it might start out with a whopping 10, but each week it dwindles until you're down to about two or three if you have that. Now, I'm not saying that to convict you. I'm saying that is the state of the church that has become desensitized to God and his word and the Holy Spirit in our midst to where we barely have enough time or make enough time, I should say, to make the most important things important in our lives. We, like the Ephesian church, have become callous. We've become desensitized yet again. We may have started out with a sense of love and purity and hope and things were going awesome and God was doing mighty works and wonders in the church. But then life takes over. And we decide, well, you know, I got this sporting event, or you know, the Steelers are playing today, and the pastor usually preaches long. <laughs> and I want to get to the pre-game, pre-pre-pre-game stuff that starts at twelve thirty, and I'll let you out before then, I promise. And I know the Steelers aren't playing. I'm not a sports guy, but I know the football hasn't started yet. So just so you know, he goes on to say, "Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you first did. If you don't repent, listen to this." This is painful to hear. If you don't repent, he's talking to the church at Ephesus. If you don't go back and do the same things you first did to love me and to love others the way you did, if you don't get back to the heart of love, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. You know what the lampstand is? The presence of God, the light that illumines that church. The source of light for that church will be removed by Jesus. How many lightless churches do we have in our culture today? All because they've decided that the things of God aren't as important as the things of the world. Well, in order to reach the world, we've got to become like the world. No, we're to be in the world, but not of it. And the more we're not of the world, we will be persecuted. And it doesn't mean you have to go around thumping people over the head with a Bible. It just means I'm going to live out my faith I'm not going to judge you for how you live your life, That's not my, but I'm not going to agree with your lifestyle or your behavior. I think it's sinful, but I believe there's a Savior that can come in and change your life radically and give you hope for a future, and if you continue to live in that behavior, I know what the end result is, and I would hate for you to experience that. And instead of praying for and walking with and loving others, either we're heavy-handed in a hand of judgment against them, or we're calloused against them and we cocoon ourselves off from the rest of the world. It, neither is good. We're to be in the world, not of the world. It's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy, right? And that who Jesus said that he came for when he was meeting in the tax collector's home, Matthew's home. And actually he says, it's not those who, are, who, who, are, who think that they're healthy. You know, hear this. It's not those who think that they're healthy 
who need a doctor, but those who know that they're sick. You have to come to the point where you know there's no other hope apart from Christ in order to get well. Don't allow anger or irritability to control you. It gives a foothold to the devil. Let me ask you these questions as our worship team comes forward today. Like the church in Ephesus, we can come to Christ in complete surrender and love for him and others completely, but slowly allow anger and irritability to creep in and take over our souls. You got to be careful. It's subtle. There are things that set us off. You may have a short wick or a long wick. You may have a launch sequence button that you know that others know that when they push that, they're going to set you off. Don't allow a foothold to the devil. How often have you allowed anger and irritability to control you? What do you do when someone irritates you? What's your first response? How do you handle issues that cause you to become angry? Does your anger and irritability stamp out the love you have for others, even your enemies? If so, this type of anger is sinful and shouldn't be in your life. And be careful that when you're tempted to irritability that you are not overtaken with sinful behavior. Take time to pray. Seek God's face in the midst of anger. Braid a whip if you need to. Don't allow the devil to have a foothold in your life or your emotions. This morning, some of you came in angry. I don't know that because I experienced it from you, but in a group this size, I know some of you came in angry. Some of you have been angry for decades because of something that happened to you in childhood. Some of you are angry at ex-spouses because of how they betrayed you or cheated on you. Some of you have allowed a foothold through anger and irritability into your life because you've been betrayed by someone you've loved and trusted. I don't know where you are, what your life story is, but you do and God does. And I know he wants to cleanse you and clean you of anger. He wants to get you to the point where you can love your enemies to where you can pray for those who have persecuted you or are currently persecuting you. He doesn't want you to allow the enemy to have a foothold in your life because he knows if, he can, if the enemy can do that to you, he's won the battle over you. You take control. You take control of your emotions and say, God, you are the God of my emotions. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, the seed of the emotions, with all your mind, your thoughts, with all your strength, every physical thing about you. And love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? The Samaritan and the Good Samaritan story was the enemy, and he was the neighbor. I don't know where you are. If you want prayer to be released, from the oppressive nature of irritability and anger. Maybe you have rage and anger issues that you've dealt with all your life. You wanna be free from that and you can be delivered from anger. But you can't be delivered from anger unless you're willing to set it, set it aside and surrender that to God. Doesn't mean you won't be tempted to it again, but you can have power over it rather than letting it have power over you. If you wanna be prayed for, come to my right, your left, there's an altar down here. If you want to reckon these issues with God on your own, you come to my left, your right. Nobody's going to bother you over here. You can pray 
alone by yourself and work those issues out with God. But if you need prayer of deliverance from anger and irritability because it has taken such a stronghold over your life and held sway over you and has kept you from experiencing the joy of your Holy Father, then come today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And um, God, our love for you oftentimes gets kind of skewed because of the anger that we're oftentimes driven to because of circumstances or situations in life. Remind us that we don't have to be slaves to anger or sin or death, that we, are, we can be slaves to Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who sets us free from sin and death. Heal us, cleanse us, deliver us from evil, deliver us from anger, irritability, and help us to love with the agape love that you give us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or, if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.